Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett, from the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, and by Katie Carpenter of New York Agriculture in the Classroom. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hi, this is Katie Carpenter from New York Agriculture in the Classroom. And today we are thinking spring and summer and fall because this episode is all about flowers. The cut flower business is interesting because it can be hyper-local or incredibly global and everywhere in between. In this episode, we will meet two of my favorite ladies who both have a heart for education and for floral arrangement. First, we'll meet my friend Jess Bretz, owner of Farmhouse Floral Design, as we talk about the twists and turns in her path that helped her find her calling in agriculture. Hi, Jess. It's so wonderful to speak with you and have you on our podcast. I've been so lucky to know you for quite a few years, and you are certainly an incredible woman in agriculture. I am excited to dig into your floral business today, but flowers weren't necessarily your first or only connection to agriculture. Can you talk about how you developed a passion for agriculture? So I grew up, as you know, Katie, I grew up on a farm where we raised livestock. I was a member of the Schoharie Valley FFA, which is how you and I connected many, many moons ago. My background is in animal production, specifically sheep and beef. And I have a degree in animal science and a master's in ag education. When I moved from North Carolina back to New York, my sister and I kind of had to take some different routes with the farm. And I started growing flowers as more or less like a hobby. I've always enjoyed gardening. I did a lot of gardening with my grandfather, my mother, my father on our farm. And then flowers just kind of fell into the loop. We started doing farmer's markets. So I wanted to have something additional to have there. So this was probably about 10 years ago now maybe a little bit longer. I still was focusing on my teaching background and actually was a teaching assistant at Schoharie High School in the special ed department for three or four years before I left my teaching position and decided to focus on the floral business. It kind of routed me back to the farm and then flowers just became my main focus. I love that your career path was not a straight shot and that, you know, education was such a strong focus for you. We'll dig into a little bit more about your shop and all the wonderful things you do there. But what do you think, what was it that tipped the scale for you that education wasn't going to be your career path and floral design was? So my son was born in 2015, and as many new moms know, you struggle with going from a fully career-driven individual to uh, being a mom and balancing mom life, career life, farm life, home life, being a wife. 
And I found that I was really unhappy with having to leave my son with somebody else, even though he went to a good friend's house and I knew he was perfectly safe and he was very happy child. uh, I was not happy. I was not happy with this struggle of balancing all of everything that I had to do and, and my plate was really full. So at that point, I had been doing wedding flowers for friends, my girlfriends from college, some of my sister's friends, girls that I had grown up with. And that was like the tipping point for me when there was a fall wedding and it was one of the larger ones I had done and my husband and I were in our garage where I did most of my work. And he asked me if I would ever quit my teaching job and focus on what made me happy. And I guess I never thought of it as a possibility for myself or my family. And that kind of did it for me. So once my husband put that idea in my head, it just kind of snowballed. And I put in for a year leave at school because my thought was if it didn't work out, I could always go back to my teaching job. So I put in for a year of absence and focused, like literally dove headfirst into the flower business and focused on my weddings and events. And that first summer I did 50 weddings and most of them were for people I did not know. And I learned a lot along the way. And I was really happy with that choice. So I contacted the school and told them I would not be returning the following school year. And then Farmhouse Floral was like literally officially born. (laughs) 50 weddings. That was a lot. Like, I don't recommend that to anybody. I bit off way more (laughs) than I could chew. I mean, they weren't huge, elaborate weddings that like you see, most of them were small and simple and they were very comfortable weddings. But now we average 75 weddings a year. And wedding season in upstate New York is primarily May through October. So there's multiple weddings in a weekend. We do blend into the winter months, but not too often. Now, with your farm, how are your family and your farm integrated in your floral design business? How are they together and how are they separate? When I started my business, I would only use what I personally was growing on the farm. And then as designs changed and like dahlias became extremely popular for weddings, there was a lot of stuff that I wasn't growing or wasn't familiar growing. So I started working with other growers in the area. Some of them are other ag teachers. But my mom since has taken over the greenhouse and the growing season to help. The design aspect is like my true passion. I love growing, starting the flowers from start to finish, like planting that seed, watching it germinate, transplanting it into the ground, doing whatever is needed, whether it's netting or pinching, or there's so many other steps that go into growing that could take hours to explain. But the design, like taking that single stem and making a finished product out of it that can then go to a customer. I love the finished product. I know all the steps that go into growing, but designing is my passion. So when I learned that about myself, you know, my mom was at that point that retiring from her position at SUNY Cobuskill. So she is not a person that sits still. (laughs) So for her to take over the greenhouse portion of the business was like a breath of fresh air for me. So I could focus on growing the shop side of what I do. So I really try to work with just locally produced flowers. 
And because we're in upstate New York, we have a smaller window for growing. There's like six other growers in my area that I work with. And I'll go down into the Hudson Valley because their season starts a little earlier than ours. But then I work with a wholesale house in the Albany area. And they connect me with growers around the country and then also around the world. There's a lot of wholesalers. But I am such a busy person that I like to be able to just call my representative and tell him what I need and let him source it for me. So that's kind of how I operate as far as like the flower production. I still help with seeding and planting and transplanting and all the harvesting and everything, but most of what is grown on the farm is used at the shop during growing season. So how much are you able to source from your farm and your partner farms compared to how much you have to bring in? What does that split look like? You touched on you are bound to that growing season and what's available. What's that look like? So in a growing season, roughly 75% of what I use is grown locally. The stuff that I bring in is usually the greenery, like the leather leaf fern and the lemon leaf and the ruscus. One of the growers I worked with, she actually is an amazing eucalyptus grower. And most people don't associate eucalyptus with New York. It's, you know, like Australia and koalas, which is legit. That's a true thing. That's where we mostly get our eucalyptus from. But when it's in season, I like to get it from Lisa. So she is one of the growers that I work with a lot. But when it's a growing season, the vast majority of what I use is coming from my farm and the surrounding farms that I work with. I would say like 75%, give or take a little bit, depending on the wedding too. I always love when there's a wedding that I can use like literally everything I harvested off the farms. I've started growing more what I call filler. So things like ornamental basil and some different herbs that have longer stems like sage and basil and dill even. There's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't think to use that you can use to fill in for greenery. Oh, I think that's so amazing because I think that really it gives another aspect to the element of the experience of their reception. We're used to the roses and maybe lilies or or other really fragrant flowers, but to have that herbaceous smell um, hit you as you're sitting at your table or at the reception, it just must be a really neat element that you're able to provide for your couple. Yeah, I definitely enjoy it. I also think it's really interesting. I've seen so many beautiful pictures of your weddings and to see that eucalyptus, I wouldn't have guessed that that was grown locally. I think that's really neat. And you do such incredible work with that greenery. Is that a trend that you really enjoy and and your brides find you because of your work with that greenery? So the eucalyptus trend is definitely driven by Pinterest and I have a love-hate relationship with Pinterest. Like I love going on it. I love the inspiration that comes from it, but a lot of the headings that are attached to those are really like false advertisement. A lot of clients will reach out to me for greenery wedding, like heavy greens with pops of flowers, thinking that it's going to be cost-effective. And in reality, it's not always. Greenery has gotten to be expensive. The garland, like the heavy garland trend has gotten to be really expensive as well. The demand for greenery has definitely increased the price of greenery, but also the production of it. So flowers are a crop and they are definitely based on mother nature and her friendliness or lack thereof. So when in places like Australia where there's the wildfires and California, you know, the hurricanes in Florida, the flower farms that are in those locations are greatly affected by what is going on around them. 
But basically, like, the supply and demand is greatly affected by the trends that brides are asking for. So now, in 2021, yes, I do a lot of greenery weddings. They are not the most inexpensive option. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. It takes a lot of greenery to make those runners look the way the clients want them to look. And it can get very costly on a wholesale level, which in then is very costly on a retail level. We hand make all of our garlands. Not everybody does that. I choose to hand make them myself. So it's time consuming as well. I've gotten faster with it over time. And I know my recipes of like how many stems it takes to make each foot of garland. But circling back to your question, Katie, yes, I do a lot of greenery. It is definitely a big trend. But if people listening that are getting married, listen to your florist because if a cost-effective wedding is what you're going for, greenery may not be the best option for you. Now, that's a big trend and you're talking about how Pinterest can really drive what people want. You also mentioned dahlias as a trend. Can you talk a little bit more about the care that goes into dahlias and maybe what colors brides are really going for? Or how do you try to anticipate those trends when you're ordering seeds now? So a lot of my clients book me eight months to, well, and now with COVID, about 18 months in advance. So I base what I'm growing, not everything I want I'm growing, I base a lot of what I'm growing on what the demand is for this upcoming season. My mom actually really, really loves dahlias and she has a small problem with not over-ordering them, especially in her favorite color. So I don't get a lot of oranges for weddings. Even in the fall, I don't get too many orange weddings. Most of them are burgundies. But anyway, my mom's favorite color is orange. So we have a lot of orange dahlia varieties. I try to base as much of what I'm growing on what I've already booked for my weddings, for my clients. It's hard to grow specifically for them though, because I also have my shop, which is a great outlet for extra or for other colors. Like I don't get a lot of yellow weddings, but I love working with yellow flowers. So anyway, so the dahlias, though, we grow a lot of whites and blush colored. The Cafe Olay is the most popular dahlia, but when working with dahlias, they don't ship very well. They are very, very delicate. So the best time to harvest is either early, early morning before they've taken on the heat of the day or end of the day when they've started to lose the heat of the day, and then they need to go in water immediately. But dahlias are hollow-stemmed flowers, so they have a hard time sucking up water once they have been harvested. So I only use dahlias that have been grown locally and that the farmer has harvested within one to two days of me having to design them. So like Michaela, who's the ag teacher at BKW, she grows an amazing amount of dahlias and hers are like insanely perfect all the time and her house is about three miles from the shop so I'll run up to her house to harvest when I need to and then of course I harvest off of the farm but we've also developed a relationship where we try to balance each other so we're not all growing the same exact variety or color because there's so many different types of dahlias like dinner plate dahlias are the really big ones like cafe olays and they're really popular for weddings I personally like working with like the snowball or pom-pom type dahlia so they're rounded they're a little bit sturdier but they do have a thinner stem so they are just as delicate do you net all of your dahlias and if you do can you explain what that is that netting that would go over them 
So I personally don't net. We tie them like field tomatoes would be tied. Well, actually, it depends on the farm. So some farmers let their tomatoes just lay flat on the ground and they harvest them from that. But others do this like figure eight style tying system, which is what I choose to do with the dahlias. I don't do the netting because it's more expensive and I try to be as cost conscious as possible with what I'm growing so that I can help keep my cost down here at the shop as well. So anyway, there's some varieties of flowers that you can't get around not netting. Like you have to net Lysianthus, which is a very delicate flower and it's super beautiful. I don't mess around with growing it. It doesn't like my soil on the farm. So another grower that I work with, she grows a ton of it and I just order directly from her. She nets it. So the netting process has to be done when the plants are just a few inches off the ground, and then you move the netting with it, and all it does is help to support the stem so that it grows straight instead of wanting to vine out or lay flat on the ground. Now, on the flip side, as we talk about what's really trendy right now, but I want to know from you, is there a trend you wish would go away in yes. the floral business? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so florist rant here. Everybody does burgundy and blush weddings. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I am also, when I got married, I did burgundy and blush. I definitely got sucked into that trend. They're beautiful colors together. Everybody has done it. Not that if they're your favorite colors, go ahead and do it. I mean, I probably, of the 75 weddings this year, I think 40 of them are burgundy and blush. So the rest are either just white and green or some are, I have some blue weddings this year and some yellow ones, but let's come up with a different color palette. Like, please. <laughs> and I also look at it this way. Flowers are meant to be what I call the icing on your cake. They're not meant to be your focus colors. Your girls' dresses, your linens, your napkins, whatever, they can be your more focused color. Let's put different colors in the palette with your flowers. So for example, I had a client last year and she was the sweetest person. Her wedding got postponed to the fall and she was originally getting married in the spring and she had like these bright, beautiful coral colors and vibrant pinks and peaches and it was like incredible. I never get to work with that color palette so I was so excited. So anyway, her wedding got pushed to the fall and she really wanted to stick with that color palette. So all she did was have her bridesmaids change their dress color. So their dresses went from a sage green, which fortunately none of them had ordered their dresses by the time they realized they had to postpone. So it was still feasible for her bridesmaids to change from a sage green color to a dark emerald green. So it gave it like this very classy, vibrant color and it fit the September timeframe instead of the May timeframe. Yeah, what a good pivot. Right. So she could still, she really wanted to use coral colors. She originally wanted to do peonies that didn't work because of the season. So we switched to dahlias. Yeah. So it really worked because she just, the only thing she changed was her bridesmaids dresses and that was it. And it made it so fit smart. the whole fall thing. So like, listen to your florist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Call your old art teacher, anything. <laughs> But you can have your girls in a burgundy colored dress and not need to do burgundy colored flowers. It's also driven up the cost of burgundy and red flowers. Blush flowers are one of the most expensive ones to get in. 
mm. in wedding season, at least in my area. It's different everywhere. Like what I charge in my shop is going to be different than what a shop in Ohio charges or a shop in California, et cetera. Every demographic is different. The cost of things is different with shipping and the farms local and the growing season and so on and so forth. Two questions. Number one, I want you to tell me your favorite flower. And number two, where can we find you if we want to learn more about farmhouse floral design? My favorite flower of all, like all time, and I would literally love to have year round are peonies, followed closely by ranunculus. But peonies are my favorite. They're like soft little pillows and they look like cupcakes in a vase. In fact, when I got married, I did order them in from Alaska to have them in my bouquet. And if my husband ever finds out what I spend on them, <laughs> he won't find out. So anyway, but if you want to learn more about me and farmhouse floral design, actually, I have two websites. I have a website focused on weddings. So that's farmhousefloraldesign.com. And then I have a website that you can purchase flowers off of, and that is shopfarmhousefloraldesign.com. They're linked together, so if you find yourself on one, you can connect to the other one. But I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, and I recently taught myself TikTok. I feel really cool. (laughs) You are really cool. (laughs) Well, Jess, thank you so much for being on Outstanding in their field. We are excited to share your story, and I think you offer so much inspiration. Well, thank you. I really, I am very flattered that you contacted me to do this, and I'm so happy that I could be a part of it. My next guest, Michaela Kerr, is the agriculture teacher at Burn Knox Westerlo, and she is a great example of how a calling and a passion can collide. Outside of the classroom, Michaela grows incredible dahlias, and these flowers are purchased and used by her neighbor, Jess Barretts, in weddings across the capital region of New York. Inside the classroom, Michaela uses flowers as a real-world teaching tool to give her students a taste of running their own business and hopefully encouraging their own entrepreneurship. All right, Michaela, well, welcome to Outstanding in Their Field podcast. We are so excited to have you on as our teacher guest for our flower episode. I was wondering, can you just introduce yourself and tell us what you teach and tell me about the community that you teach in? So I'm Michaela Kerr. I am currently in my 18th year of teaching at Burn Knox Westerlo Central School, which is in upstate New York, about a half an hour outside of Albany. We're in a very rural area. I live in Schoharie County, not too far from where I teach. And again, that area is very much an agricultural area and very rural. You have had an interesting path to the classroom and through your teaching career. Can you talk about your path to the classroom and why did you choose to teach agriculture? That's great. Um, So I grew up in Rhode Island. There are six agriculture education programs in the state of Rhode Island. My father's best friend was a high school agriculture teacher and FFA advisor, and he encouraged me to get involved. And I said, oh, no, I'm not interested in that that type of stuff. He said, go to one FFA meeting. And if you don't like it, you don't have to go back. I went to my first FFA meeting, had an incredible experience and ended up taking agriculture the last three years of my high school. 
career. I went to Delaware Valley College in Doylestown, Pennsylvania for my first year and then ended up transferring up to SUNY Cobosco where I finished my last three years as a landscape design major and then agriculture uh, business communications and then decided after working for Cooperative Extension for about a year, I decided that I wanted to go in and actually become a high school agriculture teacher. So I went to Cornell and got my master's in arts and teaching. And from there, I taught in New Hampshire for three years and then came back to New York State when it was time to uh, settle down and get married. Taught at Greenville for 11 years, and then I've been at Bern for the past four years. And you did a short little stint in there in the state FFA office, right? Because that's where I had the opportunity to meet you. That's right. Yeah. So actually in between when I first came back from New Hampshire, there were no positions in the area that I wanted to settle down in. And I actually had the opportunity to work as the interim executive secretary for New York State FFA. That was an incredible experience. And yeah, that's how you and I got to meet each other first time. Yeah, it feels like forever ago. It also feels like just yesterday. It's been so nice to have had you in my sphere in Ag Ed. And, you know, the world is small in agricultural education, but it's so nice to have such wonderful people in it. I think we're really lucky to have such a strong community in Ag Ed. I totally agree with you. So you live in a rural area surrounded by agriculture everywhere you look, but do you feel like your students are agriculturally literate? Oh, that's a good question. Yes and no. I think sometimes they're not aware of what they're surrounded by. And it's our job to make them aware and show them the opportunities. I think sometimes we in rural areas take for granted all of the opportunities that are in our backyard because it's just kind of second nature, if you would, or we grow up around it. So you're almost blind to it. That having been said, yeah, a lot of my kids, even though they're from a rural area, are not from an agricultural background. In fact, the majority of them do not have an agricultural background as far as being raised on a farm. That having been said, there are a lot of opportunities for our kids. So part of my job, I think, is to expose them to those opportunities. And what do some of those opportunities look like in your area, at least? What, what kind of things that really you see the light bulb moment happen for them? Yeah, so we have um, some smaller producers in our area, um, maple producers, and a lot of smaller horse farms. The light bulb moments, just, you know, like getting those kids off of the school campus and getting them out into the community, taking them for tours on some of these farms. Also, I think a big resource that we are very fortunate to have in our backyard is SUNY Cobleskill. So as a high school agriculture teacher, I try to get my students up onto campus at least three to four times a year, whether it's through um, some of their competitions that they host, trout in the classroom program that they do, which they do a phenomenal job on that. Also, I try to get my kids up there for the spring campus tour where I give them a tour of the agricultural facilities and all the opportunities in the various departments on that campus. And we do send several of our students there. It's a great resource right in our backyard. Oh, that's so excellent. Now, we don't have a whole lot of agriculture teachers on this podcast, but when we do, it's because they're really special and they have a really strong connection to not only with their students in their classrooms, but really have a community look, a school community look at their school district. And something really neat about you and your program is you have a super strong connection to your elementary school, especially with fifth grade teacher Sarah McArdle. Now, we love Sarah. She's come to National Ag in the Classroom Conference. She's 
always one of the first teachers to sign up for any of our programs. Can you tell us about your connection with Sarah and how did a high school ag teacher and an elementary teacher come to work together so closely? She is a true gem. Let me start by saying that. When I started at Burn four years ago now, I was told that I had a co-FFA advisor. So we have an FFA organization chapter on campus and we wanted to do a middle school and high school chapter. And they had said, hey, we've already got the teacher for you to work with you, which was awesome because typically it's the high school teacher doing both the middle school and the high school level chapter advising. So Sarah and I started working with that. Now, Sarah has a background. Her family actually owned an apple orchard for many years and still own the orchard. And she has always had a love for agriculture. It was an easy fit. She and I have always collaborated. She gets excited about any of the projects that we're doing. She's really been a great liaison between the elementary, middle school, and the high school at Burnex Westerlow. So we've actually have been able to work with a lot of elementary teachers because they have a pre-existing relationship with Sarah. And if you haven't met Sarah before, she is hands down one of the most enthusiastic people and supportive people you could ever meet. So we've done a lot of really awesome projects and a lot of it has to do with her enthusiasm and her belief in education and also the agriculture industry. So She is a gem. That is for sure. (laughs) Lucky to have her in our Ag in the Classroom world and I'm proud of all that she's done. And so I just really love watching your partnership together. So what have you seen change or become enhanced in your program because of this partnership with Sarah at the elementary school? That's a great question. I think the biggest, I don't even want to say change because when I came there, we started from square one. There was no agriculture program. So maybe that's a huge change. But the point being is that our administration and our board of education really believed in the importance of this program. They did their research. They knew there was community support. They knew that the kids needed something else. And we've always had a very supportive dynamic from our administrators, especially from the superintendent who has said that the agriculture program at Burnex Westerlo really is the center hub of all education. Everything can go back to agriculture. So he gets it. Like he understands that there's a connection, whether it's an English class or a history class or science, obviously, or mathematics, he sees the connection. And so that opportunity to really incorporate agriculture education in some of these lessons pre-K to 12 has been a really incredible opportunity. And we've been very fortunate for that support. The teachers at our school district too really, I believe, get it and want to be involved with the program. They see what it's doing for the students. They see that the kids at the um, elementary level get excited when they have a, a book read to them for Ag Literacy Week and there's a lamb in the classroom or they're doing a hands-on project or they're working in the high tunnel that we received as a part of the Ag in the Classroom grant. So they're excited to be a part of this program, which is it's awesome. Oh, that's so great. I really am excited about your full school community around food and agriculture and using that as that lens, that context for learning. I think there's so much to gain for your students and it's so exciting that you get to be part of that push. So it must just be so nice to have a community that values agriculture in that way. Absolutely. It is. The support, whether it's local producers or community members, 
board of ed men members, it all matters. And I think that people see the importance of this industry. And now more so than ever, I think that people are developing their appreciation for what is produced locally. So that's, that's exciting to see. So I know that flowers are a really important part of your life. Can you talk about where your love of florals started? Absolutely. It's funny because I think that agriculture teachers need to be generalist to begin with, but I think we all have our specialty or our point of interest. And mine obviously is landscaping, but also floral design and flowers. And that actually began when I was a high school agriculture student in Rhode Island. We always did a contest, a landscape design contest at the county fair, and we'd go to the Big E in Springfield, Massachusetts. So I really enjoyed doing the landscaping portion of that. And my supervised agricultural experience or SAE while I was in high school is a home and community development. And I did a big landscaping project as a result of that SAE project. So that's where that started. As far as growing plants and working in the greenhouse and also floral design, that also began when I was in high school. I took a floral design class and we had a greenhouse. So just growing plants, it was something that honestly, up until high school, I really didn't have any interest in it. And then I did it as a class and was like, wow, you can actually you can make money doing this. And it's a lot of fun and it's hands-on and you get to be creative. And that's really where it all started. And so how do you include growing flowers and floral design in your curriculum? What does that look like in your classroom? That's great. We received several grants through the National FFA organization in Tractor Supply Company, and I really tailored them to plant science initially when we were starting the program at Burn. I called it BKW Blooms. So what we do is we actually have kind of like a mock flower shop type of thing where we do arrangements several times a year for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Valentine's Day and uh, Mother's Day. But we also do some growing and we do have a high tunnel. This year, I'm hoping to expand more to outside beds. And I really would like to get our program producing a lot of the plants that we are going to, in fact, be utilizing in floral design the following fall. We do have a grow cart in the classroom too, but that is mainly for growing lettuce and herbs that we have in the past. This past year has been a little bit of a struggle, but we have utilized them in the cafeteria and also as a part of the backpack program at our school. And I'm hoping to get that up and running again right now. There's a lot of room for improvement. I will say that I do own New Blossom Farm, which is a cut flower farm at my home. And I do utilize a lot of the blooms that I grow in floral design which has been kind of cool. So the kids actually see that they came from my property, which is only, you know, 15 miles away from school. And we're utilizing local product versus product that's been shipped in from Colombia or Ecuador or something like that. Now, not to say that we don't use product that's produced elsewhere in the world, but it's fun to use locally produced blooms because the kids are like, oh, wow, you grew those? And I'm like, yeah, you guys can do it too. There's nothing special about my place versus your place. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. They really get to see you as a teacher, but that you also have a life outside of those walls of the classroom and that you are an entrepreneur. So can you tell us a little bit about your floral business? Absolutely. So I went to SUNY Colville-Skill as a landscape design major. That's where I got my associates in landscape design. And I did my internship in Rhode Island for a perennial installation company. And I enjoyed that. I love planting perennial flowers, but 
I also at the same time worked for a garden center that had a floral design component. And we were fortunate enough to be near the casinos in Connecticut. And we did a lot of work for upscale clientele at the casinos. So I got to do a lot of really cool, creative things. And I decided that this is something that I really enjoy doing. And I really enjoy growing plants. And I'm like, why can't I incorporate all of these different opportunities into one thing. So I've always have managed to work with floral designers. In fact, right now I work a lot with farmhouse floral design, Jess Barretts, who is a former New York State FFA officer. And she's a very successful local entrepreneur here in Schoharie County. And we do a lot of event work, wedding work, a lot of local designs as well. And Jess has actually purchased a lot of the material that I've grown. So I've also worked as a wholesaler and have been able to incorporate that into my business model. This past spring with COVID, we have a high tunnel on my property. And my husband said, how can we get this stuff growing earlier? So we decided to incorporate some raised beds into one of the high tunnels that we have here. And we were able to start producing flowers earlier. And I had an overabundance and there wasn't much of a wedding industry right now. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those flowers were not being purchased like they would normally be purchased for wedding work. So my husband said, well, how can we sell these? And I said, give me a flower cart and I'll sell them. So he built me a flower cart last summer and we opened it up, New Blossom Farms flower cart. And I make cut flower bouquets. People can swing in and pick them up and, and be on their way. And it's a great way to develop relationships locally with people and also to move product that you know, depending on what's going on in the economy, sometimes the business that you think you're going to have changes based on what's going on. So like with COVID, there weren't as many large weddings. So therefore I had extra product and I am now able to move it. Yeah. I think that shows your resilience and versatility. And I know you have to have a lot of willpower to drive by such beautiful flowers without stopping. So that's so exciting that you started. I've seen pictures of your cart and it looks just adorable. And what a smart move that you are able to transition in that way. Thank you. I think it's important too that I think that, you know, education is, especially right now is very busy and it's, it's stressful. You know, you're doing things differently than you normally have. This has been a creative outlet for me. And it's also, it's a good way for me to show my students that, you know what, like there is a way of supplementing your income or doing something else that you enjoy doing. And, and also it's a part of my job. So, you know, that's important too, is instilling that lifelong learning respect for learning in our students. And I say to them, hey, you know what? I was on a podcast last night learning about how to soil block and grow seeds and different types of media. And the kids are like, you're really learning about that? I'm like, yeah. Like now, and now I can teach them about that. So I think it's important to find what it is that you're passionate about and incorporate that into what you do. And I mean, I'm passionate about teaching, but I'm also passionate about flowers and why can't I do both? That's such a great lesson for our students that you can love many things and, you know, your work life doesn't stop, you know, after five o'clock that you can, you can do other things that fill you with joy and passion and, and you're giving them all these amazing skills that maybe, maybe somebody in your class is going to find that passion for flowers and get that entrepreneurship bug. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. <laughs> Well, I think that business component is really, really important. How do you, whether it's BKW Blooms or in your classes, how do you get your students to start to understand this, the true concept of money and business and 
making money and losing money and, and trying something new. How do you get those messages across to them? That's a good question. I think the biggest thing, especially when you're at school and you're ordering in flowers from a wholesaler is show those kids those numbers. And then, and I think that's a wake up call. And I really take it and I say, okay, if there's 10 stems per bunch of, I don't know, stock and it costs, you know, $8.95, really what is the cost wholesale, not retail, but wholesale per stem? And then you tell them, okay, now to properly mark this up, you have to multiply it times three and talk to the kids about really pricing things out properly. Part of me gaining this experience is by me working with other floral designers and for other businesses. So seeing what they do, and they've always have said, anybody who I've ever worked with has been like, make sure that your pricing is fair and that you're making a profit. If you're not making a profit, why are you bothering? The other thing is that the kids need to understand that not only is that cost per bunch, but then you have to factor in the shipping cost. And lately, you know, shipping per delivery is at least $15 because they have a fuel surcharge on there. So you got to figure that in. And then you have to figure in your cost. Normally we'd have to pay for, you know, rent for space or electricity. And also things like when you're making a design up, the cost of the hard goods, the floral foam, the dish, the tape that you're using, the packaging, the card that goes into it. So really breaking it down for the kids and having them have their hands on those numbers is super important because it's fun to make the designs and you can put as many flowers in there as you want. But if you're not selling it at a profitable cost, you're really just donating your time and your resources. So, you know, when I bring flowers in from home, those dahlias can sell anywhere from a buck 50 wholesale stem to 450, depending on the variety that's wholesale stem. So if you're selling that retail, you're looking at, you know, three, five, maybe upwards of eight bucks a stem. They need to understand that, that when you're putting those kind of expensive flowers in, it adds up and uh, they need to be knowledgeable about that. So allowing the kids to get their hands on those numbers. And when we get a big order in to do a wedding at school, which we've done some weddings, or we, we have a big order in because we're doing the Thanksgiving centerpieces and there's like $400 worth of product. I say to the kids, like, look at all these flowers. This is $400. But they're like, that's really $400. They're thinking it's maybe $100 worth of product. And I'm like, no, that's a lot of money. <laughs> How exciting that they get that real world experience and that they actually get to be that service provider for a wedding. And then that's a real true experience, the hustle and bustle of a day and setting up with other vendors. And that's a really exciting experience for them. Absolutely. Um, and one thing I do try to do is so while I have floral design experience, a lot of times I try to have people be guest speakers. Lately, it's been virtual guest speakers, but come in. So I'll have, like I said, Jess Barretts will be a virtual guest speaker in my floral design class. I want them to see the people who really do this for a living day to day and get appreciation for it. And I will say I've had several students who have, as a result of having exposure to doing the weddings or seeing the virtual speaker, they're like, I didn't know you could do this as a career. This is really kind of cool. It gives them that hands-on tangible experience. They don't want to hear from me every single day. And it gives them a chance to see from somebody new who is passionate about their career. Well, Michaela, I can't thank you enough for your time and joining us on the podcast. You shared so many wonderful stories and insights into both being a teacher and a flower farmer and a floral designer. So thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it.
I hope you enjoyed our episode about flowers. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on New York agriculture in the classroom, visit agclassroom.org forward slash NY. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service. Visit the show notes to learn more about our guests today and follow their adventures on the farm and in the classroom. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field. Thank you.